Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Welcome to today's episode of the Food Junkies podcast. We are so excited for you to hear from our guest today, Dr. Robert Saivez. Listen in as he speaks with Vera and I about his personal and professional journeys, his understanding of family structures and how that affects individuals with food addiction, how he works with clients in his program, what he thinks about weighing and measuring in volume addiction, what he thinks about weight loss, and how he answers our signature question. Welcome, Dr. Saivez. Hi, my name is Dr. Vera Tarman, and I am your host today, along with Molly Painswab, uh, for the Food Junkies podcast. Today, we are talking to Dr. Robert Saivas, otherwise known as the Carb Addiction Doctor. Dr. Saivas is a board-certified surgeon who specializes in weight management and bariatric surgery. He got his medical degree from the University of Cape Town and then pediatric surgery at the Ohio State University. Currently, he works in Florida. Wait, wait, let, me, let me interrupt you for a second. Yeah. Michigan. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. <laughs> I went to Ohio State. That was the first okay. university, but Michigan was my pediatric surgery. Okay. Sorry about that. Uh, now, if you know anything about, about uh, Michigan and Ohio State, you know you're apologizing to a whole nation right now. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, currently, he works in Florida where he runs a bariatric clinic, and here he offers behavioral treatment as well as surgery for his obese and diabetic patients. Uniquely, he also has a PhD in liver carbohydrate metabolism. This is completely unique. He has the biochemical and the clinical acumen to fully understand and talk about carb addiction, which is what we want to do today. He identifies as the carb addiction doctor, and like us at Food Junkies, he prefers to use the tools from the substance abuse model rather than the standard medical ones, which include surgery, diet, and exercise. Or I guess he adds on to that. So Dr. Saivas, could you please tell us how you took that extra unique step that a surgeon rarely does, which is move into the whole concept of carbohydrate addiction to the point where you went to the trouble to get a PhD. Well, what made you do that? Molly, I, uh, yeah, thank you very much for having me on. I just want to make one addition, the most important addition to that little biology is that I did my PhD and my general surgery training in a little town called Toronto in Canada. <laughs> so I, had to throw, I had to throw that out there. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, I see that. So, yeah, you know, a uh, um, couple of things. First of all, I am the beneficiary of an amazing medical training. The guy that first helped me to do something that he did his whole career and that he taught me to do, which is ask the question why. And until you're satisfied with the answer, don't stop asking the question why. And don't get trapped in the dogma of existing thinking. And that was a guy called Tim Noakes. And Tim mm. was my professor of physiology at the University of Cape Town in the ninth, early 80s. You know, Tim bucked the entire running world with a conceptual understanding that carbohydrate loading is critically important for ultra-distance athletes. He's obviously now completely transformed his way of thinking, but Tim was one of the early, early promulgators of carb loading and turned it into a big science, but then had the intestinal fortitude take his entire life's work and just tear it up and rip it up and say, you know what? I was wrong. Wow. That's amazing. And then he was prosecuted for that. Now, I haven't been to that depth, but I also found exactly the same. I worked in Toronto when I did my PhD. I worked with a guy called David Jenkins, who's the father of the, of the um, glycemic index. He's a diabetes doctor and researcher in Toronto. And we were looking at the liver to see how we could best glycogenate the liver? How, how quickly can we fill the liver with sugar? Because clearly sugar is the most important thing that the human body needs. And the liver, especially the transparent liver needs that. And paradoxically, what we found was that 
the more we glycogenated the liver, the worse the liver fare, the worse it performed. And we became really good at shoving sugar into livers. And the sad part is that we were so hell-bent on our hypothesis that we couldn't see that there was a problem with the hypothesis. So we published the fact that we were really good at glycogenating the liver and we stopped there. But what I'd already seen and kind of ignored was this massive vascular injury that happened in the liver when you added sugar. And it took me a decade to understand that what I was looking at in the laboratory at Mount Sinai Hospital was diabetes. Uh I was actually seeing the creation and the origin of diabetes, which, and diabetes is actually a vasculopathy. It's a vascular disease. It's injury to blood vessels. So it took me a decade to understand that. And then the other part, the other penny that dropped in clinical practice, I was actually at Vanderbilt and I was, I'm a pediatric surgeon and I was operating on a young boy, 13 years old, over 300 pounds, taking out his gallbladder. And the day after his surgery, I went to visit him and the guy's enormous. He shouldn't have had gallbladder problems, but he's sitting there after his gallbladder surgery with this pile of French fries and McDonald's and a Dr. Pepper. And I looked at this and I said, the common myth is that he's fat because he's eating fat. That's the, that's the common understanding. And yet when I look at this kid, there's no fat on his table, on his tray. Yeah. The, the fries were fried in whatever oil they fried them in, but there's no fat on this plate. And that's what he eats every day. There is a 90% of that with sugar. So how is it possible that something we don't eat and that we've demonized for 50 to 70 years, which is sugar and at least uh, fat and salt, is suddenly causing everybody to be fat? And then I hearken back to my time in the laboratory and I realized, you know what? The problem here is not saturated fat. The problem is sugar and starch. And it was very obvious to see that the way that guy was, that kid was eating his meal was no different than an alcoholic drank or than a smoker smoked. He was obsessed with his food. And I started exploring the concept of substance abuse more and more. And I looked at his family and they were all very, very heavy. And I realized that the problem with this kid's family is they have no rules. They have no structure. There's nothing here. And they are just eating and drinking because it's the easiest, simplest way to get high. And I knew obviously for myself, that was the same situation, but I couldn't correlate myself. I was weighing 300 pounds myself. I couldn't correlate that, who I was as a human being with this permissive family that has no structure, no rules. They do whatever they want to for fun and they're happy-go-lucky, wonderful group of people, but vastly different from a personality structure to myself. So I recognized early on that a permissive family setting lends itself to addictive behavior. But what about people like me? And I come from a highly, highly authoritarian family setting. So I started to look at obesity and and diabetes, and I realized there really are two primary conditions that lend themselves to a vulnerability to addictive behavior. And I think that is the phrase that's so important. There are certain settings which children are raised to be vulnerable to addictive behavior. And one is permissive and the other one is authoritarian with perhaps a smattering of neglectful child rearing thrown in there. And they can be neglectful, permissive, neglectful, authoritarian, but they cannot be permissive authoritarian, even though they may have a parent from each side. A lot of families do very, very well when you've got a highly authoritarian, almost narcissistic parent with a permissive parent but the child tracks to one or the other. So when I put all of that together, just in an observational way, doing what Tim Noakes told me, it was so darn obvious. You know, there's a lovely phrase that we're using more and more on social media, which says, I just can't unsee that. When you see something, I can't unsee it. And, And over the last 22 years that I've been doing this, it was just something I couldn't unsee. And the more I tried to tell myself that I was wrong, that it has to be calories and it has to be fat and it has to be a lack of exercise, the more and more I proved to myself that I couldn't unsee what I already knew. But does that make sense to you? Yeah. So, so this was happening, um, or like, like what, even in Toronto days. So in your late nineties, correct. Late 1990s. And this was not the common way of thinking, certainly not in uh, the medical circles. I mean, you were going quite against the grain at that point. 
So is that what made you then decide to do the PhD to get further um, credentials or? No, the other way around. This, I'd already done my PhD. I was already practicing as a pediatric surgeon. I was dealing with my own obesity, but also what I saw around me. So this was my first foray into clinical practice. My first real job was at Vanderbilt. And this is 1999 when I started, left Michigan and went to Vanderbilt. And that's really where the penny started dropping for me. And I could use my liver background, my hepatic metabolism background, and combine it with my clinical observations. And it was so darn obvious. And yet at that time, you couldn't even whisper that word. You couldn't even whisper the fact that carbohydrates may be in any way, shape or form implicated in obesity. Because Coca-Cola was telling us that it's not the sugar in our Coke that's the problem. It's the fact that you don't move as much. And they started this whole billion dollar move more campaign to tell us we were just lazy when we were fat. The problem with that was that skinny people were as lazy as fat people in terms of exercise. So um, that didn't hold true. But so, yeah. Yeah. So, so for our listeners, I know that Molly's going to want to jump in on the uh, sort of your clinical work about using some of these concepts. But just for our listeners, if you can just give a, I don't know, a small paragraph of how you see sugar or carbohydrates as a neuroactive drug uh, in the context of endorphins, in the context of the stopping point, some of the terminology that you use. Right. So the, the first thing is all you yeah. have to do is open your eyes. And you will see people getting high all around you. I grew up in the uh, early 60s where everybody smoked. And it was exactly the same thing. Oh, God, I need a cigarette. And where can I go? And they were lighting up all over the place. Now we hear exactly the same thing. Just forget about me being a doctor. Just open your eyes. And when anybody ever says, oh, I'm hungry, that has nothing to do with biology. That has to do with emotional tension that needs relief. And the mechanism of relief is putting something in their mouth, usually a carbohydrate. We'll come back to that in a second. So that was the first part where it's so obvious when you connect the dots. All you have to do is look around you. You know, I'm stuffed from eating a steak. I can't eat more steak. Why then am I eating cheesecake? It has nothing to do with the nutrition. And it's very, very obvious that people, when they're bored, when they're stressed, that's what they turn to. They're not eating broccoli. They're eating sugar and starch. The second part is there were, there's been a number of people working in the field. Now, this happened to me before any of this stuff existed. So I made that connection personally with the people around me, and it was such an obvious assumption. But more and more work has come out where they've done MRI studies comparing a brain on cocaine versus a brain on sugar, and the same parts of the brain light up. I'm not a neuropathologist. And then someone like Nicole Avina, uh, who works out of uh, Mount Sinai, she's done some amazing work in that regard. So there are a number of people that brought this to the table. And I think, just by the way, if I can correct one thing, it is not food addiction. It Uh is specifically carbohydrate addiction. Nobody's addicted to fluids. They're addicted to alcohol. Nobody gets drunk because they drink water, and we do not get high or fat from food. Sugar and starch has been inserted in the food category, but needs to be segregated out of there uh, because it doesn't really, in the modern era, have nutritional value. So, uh, but, but, but be that as it may, my connection with this happened personally long before the world really made that neurobiological connection. Oh, okay. All right. Um, Good. So, well, I wanted to ask you, so you're talking about specifically our carbohydrate addiction. So what we're talking about with carbohydrates, obviously junk food, so obviously refined stuff, but what about grains? What about legumes? Like how far do you go in terms of carbohydrates? Just again, for our audience, so they know what you're talking about. So what we're talking about is to, to really get to the nuts and bolts. What we're talking about is monosaccharides. And there are three of them that the human, that humans consume glucose, galactose and fructose. And they are a six-sided molecule made of carbon with slight variations. One occurs mostly in milk products. The other occurs everywhere else. And those are the three molecules that each cause the diseases of that are the consequential of chronic excessive carbohydrate consumption. So it is monosaccharides. And there's such a fallacy that um, there's natural sugar or saying that there's natural sugar is like saying that there's a natural tobacco. You can smoke it with impunity. 
I've got an ad in my office that from Time Magazine from not that long ago is saying 100% organic natural uh, tobacco. <laughs> it is not okay to smoke. And if you ask any Cubans, that was the message that Castro put out. Cigars from Cuba are absolutely fine to smoke because they're they're organic. Well, they've got some of the highest cancer rates in the world from smoking. So undoing that myth, there is more sugar in an apple than there is in a donut. And you bite into an apple, your sugar spikes up. My sugar, I haven't done that for a long time because I don't trust myself, but sugar goes up, uh, doubles up for four hours for one apple. Uh Um, So it is a monosaccharide addiction, irrespective of where the sugar comes from. Okay, so you would. Yeah, an apple is no longer a little sour thing that Adam and Eve ate. Uh It is now this huge big thing that has been hybridized, and they didn't add nutritional value, they added crystal meth to the apple. Right. Okay. That's, that's well said. Um, so are you saying then that in your practice, you would actually advocate to not eat fruit and to not eat dairy? No, no. Okay. Dairy, dairy is on the animal product side. Dairy's app. The reason not to eat dairy is if you don't like it, you're allergic to it. Yeah. So I have no, so, you know, we were talking about the monosaccharide. What is the only thing an alcoholic should do? But not drink alcohol. Oh uh, yeah. Very easily. Yeah. It's very, that's, there's no magic, not drink alcohol. Nobody, 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 nobody tells an alcoholic what they should drink. Uh-huh. Right. As long as they're not drinking alcohol and it's binary, there's never, ever a valid reason to drink alcohol. But what they do drink, there's better and worse. There's no nothing there. But when it comes to carbohydrates, uh-huh. the only thing an obese person or a diabetic person should not do, in my opinion, is eat carbohydrates. The problem is that the world is populated with a bunch of people that love to tell fat people. And the reason I use that word is because I've dropped 98 pounds, mm-hmm. but I'm still fat up here. So I've got to, it's a reminder to self, yeah, yeah. it's not a criticism. But the point is, everybody on the internet, everybody out there is an expert telling me what I should eat. It's uh-huh. absolute garbage. The uh-huh. only thing I must not eat, like the alcoholic, no carbohydrates. There's my boundary. What okay. I eat within those boundaries is up to me as long as it's not carbohydrates with one caveat. Yeah. All vegetables contain carbohydrates. Yes. But as long as you're human, you have lost the capacity to extract the sugar from cellulose. That just makes my surgical experience better because it destroys your colon. Um, if you want diverticulitis, if you want colon cancer, eat vegetables. <laughs> I'm uh-huh. being kind of facetious a little bit there, but the point is that an alcoholic does not ever have to count how much alcohol there is in a drink. Right. It's a binary thing. Yes, okay. I can drink this. No, I can't. It doesn't matter right. how light the beer is. It doesn't matter. Same okay. thing with a cigarette. It doesn't matter how filtered or low the tar content is. A cigarette is a cigarette. And if you've quit smoking, don't. So I, but I just want to be clear. So that yes. means no grains. That means no. no so, but let, let me, all right, let me get to that. Yeah. So if you don't mind, so, all vegetables are free. You don't have to count the carbohydrate content of vegetables. They're uh-huh. all free. I've never met a fat person who had a rough day and rushed to the fridge for Brussels sprouts. Okay. However, there are three absolutes. All right. That's what no I want. No of any kind. Okay. And I don't nope. care if it's the sexy California grain called couscous or just uh-huh. white bread. I don't care what it is. No grains, no rices of any kind, and yeah. no yeah. potatoes of any kind. Other than that, I don't care what you eat. You can be more vegetarian. You can be more carnivore. It just doesn't matter. And of course, yeah. no refined sugars and sugars. You want to add that onto your. Well, I mean, you know, if you if you're eating vegetables and animal products without yeah. those three, nothing else exists. Okay. Fruit is all, fruits on the no list. Uh, keto lookalikes, all because something says it's keto ice cream. Yes. Number one, it's still ice cream, or because someone put the sexy word in front of it, it doesn't absolve it of its harm. And the second thing is the reason anybody ever eats ice cream is not for its nutritional value. No, it's addictive. So, you know, those are the places where I'm, I'm, and, 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 you know, Vera, the reason why I'm this adamant about it and this binary, number one, this doesn't apply to everybody, applies specifically to people who are beyond abuse, that are in the addiction or the obsessive compulsive world. But the second thing is this, 22 years of doing this, 98% of people fail. Uh Uh-huh, yes. And they fail, not because they're not intense about it, not because they do this, but there's a massive distinction between addiction methodology, which is binary and absolute, and diet methodology, 
which is all about control, about willpower, and it's deprivational. Yeah. You know, you can't tell an alcoholic you can have a, one drink on a Sunday. No, no heroin addict just uses a little bit of heroin on a Tuesday. It doesn't work that way. So okay. why should you give people like myself the ability to eat a little bit of carbohydrate and make that okay? Okay. Well, let's, let's talk now about how you work. So Molly, you go for this. <laughs> Yeah, I'm over here. I'm just like shaking my head. Yes, because yeah. I, we're just getting so excited. And in case you can't tell, Vera is too, because this is everything we've been saying to our clients, to our listening um, audience um, for a while now. And so, you know, I want to go back to that authoritarian permissive place, because I, I know I've heard you speak about like, that's how you determine um, or, or you use a method to kind of determine if people fall into those groups. And so I'm wondering, how do you individualize treatment for authority, the people that fall under the authoritarian versus the permissive? Like, how, how does that work in your clinic? Good question. So as I get into this, I just want to clarify one other thing. Number one, carbohydrates aren't a problem. Alcohol is not a problem at all. Okay. I drink alcohol. I'm fine. We grew up as a species eating carbohydrates. We're fine because of it. It's our relationship with the substance that is the problem. And the relationship is based upon a vulnerability to addictive behavior. Okay. And so all children are raised with two separate distinct mechanisms of emotion management. The human brain has an endorphin system, a series of chemicals in it that when activated dissipates emotional tension. And as long as you've got a pulse throughout the day, we're experiencing incoming emotional tension, okay? This, for example, my cup of coffee is something you'll see me sipping on as part of that little bit of emotional tension. I talk with my hands as well. Why? Because it relaxes me. So those are a little bit like an autistic child that may do some self-stimming. So the point is that um, children are raised typically a healthy child is raised with both an instant gratification system as well as a, an effort-based emotion management system. And the instant gratification system is anything that instantly, uh, a cigarette, uh, a carbohydrate, and I'm not saying you're addicted to them, but gives you that instant spike of chemical uh, substance endorphin activation. And then separately, there's something called a process addiction, which is um, gambling, pornography, where it's an act. And the unique thing about carbohydrates is they are, as far as I'm aware, the only dual process and yeah. uh, um, substance addiction. The substance addiction is sugar itself. Um, and the process addiction is snacking. Yeah, or eating. Snack is yeah. always an emotion of it. Now, yeah. The set, the other way that children are raised is with what I call an effort-based emotion management system. And ultimately, endorphin release is based on reward. The instant gratification system is the reward up front, which is the chemical high. In an effort-based system, the reward is on the back. So you mm -hmm. have to put effort in up front. So if I've had a rough day and I leash up my dog and we go for a walk, that walk, physical activity, not exercise, physical activity is an endorphin activator. But it doesn't do so in a spike. It does so gradually over time. And into that time space, as your brain relaxes, you are then able to connect with your subconscious and identify and sort through and come to terms with some of the issues that triggered the emotion in the first place. If I had a fight with somebody today and I'm feeling aggressive, just angry and upset, I can sort through, okay, what happened? How do I deal with it? Whereas an instant gratification system leads to psychological hoarding where you just shove that into your subconscious and I'll deal with it later. And the reward on the back end of, a, of an effort-based system. So the walk relaxes me. There's a meditative component while I'm walking to sort through the issues. And on the back end, and this is critical, if you have unconditional pride in the effort you put in, that unconditional pride of the effort, irrespective of the outcome, in tiny little increments, raises self-esteem and self-confidence that mm -hmm. you can then reinvest in an effort-based system. And there are four pillars to an effort-based system, physical activity, any of the creative arts, spirituality, meditation, and empathetic human connection. And I can expand on those if you want to. However, there are two family settings that preclude a child 
from incorporating those things into the fabric of who they are as they grow up. In a permissive family setting, the child has all the intent in the world to do it, but they, they do not have the capacity because of how they were, are raised to sustainably act on their intent. Mm-hmm. So that's, I'm going to go for a walk. I've had a rough day. I'm going to go for a walk. But just before I go, I'm going to have one little shot of whiskey. Mm-hmm. And half an hour later, they pass down on the couch. The walk never happens. So a permissive family lacks that structure. They default to an instant gratification system. And they, ne- they lack the structure. And you've got to know that if you try to dismantle structure as a therapist from somebody, I don't claim to be a therapist, by the way, but um, if you try to dismantle structure from a permissive person who has no structure anyway, you're totally lost. What you have to help them to do is to create external structure because they will never go for a walk by themselves in a sustainable way. But if they're going to meet their neighbor, Joe Bob, down the road and walk their dogs at five o'clock, they're going to show up. So we've got to create structure, recognize they need addition of structure. The authoritarian person, no matter how much effort they put in, it's all about the outcome. So the authoritarian person is like, I'm going for a walk today. I'm stressed out. I put on my Fitbit. I'm going to do 10,000 steps. And they come back and they've done 8,000 steps. How pathetic am I that I didn't do 10,000? Look, my Fitbit is telling me how useless I am. Oh, and my God, I get it. <laughs> and, right. The gap between effort and expectation yeah. is filled with a sense of failure and not being good enough that is extremely erosive to self-esteem and self-confidence. The very reward is contaminated by that feeling. So there's no way on God's earth they are going to incorporate an effort-based system as a reward system because it makes them, gives them a sense of failure. So they fill that gap with triangulation to an instant gratification system. That's the, so for those people, they have excess structure. And I, what we have to help them to do is to trade in perfectionism for self-compassion by dismantling some of the structure. And an, an, an authoritarian family, which is what we're going for in the middle, has rigid boundaries, but tons of choice within that. And the choice is through ownership and empowerment, where you feel good about what you've done. And if you feel great about something, you're going to repeat it. So authoritarian child is, hey, Johnny, you have to eat some broccoli. It's good for you. Oh, mom, okay, for you, I'll eat it. Here's your broccoli. And he eats the plate of food. And 20 minutes later, look, mom, I finished my broccoli. Well, that took you long enough. Hmm. The permissive child is, Hey, Johnny, I want you to eat some broccoli. Okay, mom, I love broccoli. But you know what, mom? There's some pizza in the fridge. I'm going to eat the pizza today, and I promise you tomorrow I'll eat double the broccoli. Obviously, tomorrow never comes. The authoritative child is, hey, Johnny, I want you to eat a vegetable. Boom, there's a boundary. We're going to eat a vegetable. you got a choice. Do you want peas, carrots, or broccoli? And they're all okay on a keto diet, by the way. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God, carrots have so much sugar in them. We'll get back to that if you want to. But peas, carrots, or broccoli. Oh, mom, I like broccoli. I'll have some broccoli. And she puts the broccoli down in front of him. He eats some of the broccoli. eats a third, a half. Mom, I'm full. Great job. Well done. Off you go. Praising the effort, ignoring the outcome. Mm. But the child has to sustainably put the effort in. He's got ownership. That is a child that has close to zero vulnerability to addictive behavior because he feels great about what he does even if the outcome isn't perfect. So that's the transformation. And within 10 or 15 seconds of meeting somebody, I have to be able to assign them to a particular parenting style because if I dismantle structure for a permissive or increase structure for a authoritarian, I've lost them. So it's difficult. And most often the authoritarians think of themselves as permissive because all they want to do is put more effort into something. How pathetic am I that I'm not, I didn't work hard enough. I didn't work. I didn't run fast. No, you didn't. Uh-huh. And so, yeah, I, go I, ahead. I, so that's, Molly, the, that's Molly, the way we divide that up. I'm sorry. I'm going to interrupt you, Molly, because I got to ask this yeah, question. As a, as a physician, um, I just, I, my mind is just, I, my jaw is gobsmacked or whatever. I could never imagine a surgeon talking the way that you are. And, and so there you are, you're doing behavioral therapy in, in your surgery practice. I mean, how unusual is that? And so, well, there so this, is there, if I can just stop you there. The yeah. issue is this, that 85% of people yeah. fail surgery. Ah, and okay. it's not Please, that the surgery elaborate. fails. It's 
the surgery is the most powerful weight loss diet you could ever be on. It basically, it kills your best friend. It stops you from eating for a while. But so people lose a ton of weight with surgery. But if you extrapolate your current age to the age at which you want to die, that's how long it has to last for. And surgery typically only lasts from a weight loss perspective for one or two years. Wow. 85% of people, if they don't address the root cause of their obesity, if they just lose weight, they gain all the weight back. Uh-huh. You know, you can put a diabetic on all kinds of diabetic medication and never eradicate diabetes until you get them to understand and eliminate carbohydrates. And then in twos, it goes away. So what I realized is my patients were not failing because the surgery was terrible. They were failing because they didn't address or understand why they gained the weight in the first place. And the beauty is to combine the two. My job with surgery is to get rid of their excess weight or help them with their diabetes. No different than Jason Funk gets people to fast when when their kidneys are dying. It's just another option. But the, the hard work, which you cannot outsource, to a medication or to a surgery or to another human being in dealing with the root cause addiction. But if we we partner with a patient and sometimes if I can get the patient to to change those habits, they don't need surgery. The surgery is there as an added tool, like you would add another medication to a brittle diabetic. Nobody would think twice. No doctor would think twice about adding a medication to someone with Hashimoto's disease or diabetes, but everyone's petrified of surgery. It's just a tool that we use, but we have to help the patients to be long-term successful. So, okay, so I love that. We can't outsource this fundamental second hardest part. That's beautiful. But that is so, I've never heard a surgeon say that. So are you the lone surgeon that's speaking this or are people doing this at the obesity conferences? They're not doing it as far as I know in Canada. Are you hearing about this in the U.S.? Absolutely not. The problem is that surgery is so darn effective. And surgeons do surgery. That's what we do. Yeah. You know, it's it's like a Geico ad. Uh, This is what we do. So don't have an expectation that we're suddenly going to be hand-holding kumbaya type people. It's just not going to happen. We are surgeons. We operate. We cut people for a living. And we are darn good at getting amazing results. If I can get someone to lose 200 pounds in a year, why should I even bother about anything else? And if they gain the weight back, they are failed. By the time that happens, they're gone. And they, we also rely they come back on for the second surgery. surgery. Well, right. And then we get to do a second surgery. So for the most part, surgeons outsource their patient management to a dietitian who's been traditionally trained in the oh, balanced food pyramid. Dietitians have either never been skinny or never been fat. So it's very difficult for them to say, well, this works for me. It should work for you as well. That's the Gary Taub's philosophy that all because it works for me, that my dogma should should work for you if you do it well enough. But we outsource that to people in our office Uh and mostly dietitians who do not have a psychological running. Nothing wrong with a dietitian. I've got got one in my own practice. I love her to bits and have learned a tremendous amount, but she's part of a team. And the psychology is also important. There is one other doctor, Ariel Ortiz, who has been a friend of mine for a long time, who has come to terms with the carbohydrate model as well. But other than that, not only not in the surgical world, but mostly in the ketogenic world, people like us do not exist very much. Uh-huh. They pay homage to it, but ultimately it's about a diet. It's about deprivation. It's about what you're not allowed to eat. Addiction is about what you can eat, not about what you can't eat. It's about empowerment. It isn't about loss. So okay. with that, you talk a lot about it with, with your clients, or, or at least on your YouTube channel and that kind of thing. You talk a lot about replacements and bridge items and that kind of thing. You held up your copy yeah. a little while late, or, um, a while a little while ago. Will you talk to us about how you use those tools with your clients? Like, what do you define as a replacement? What do you define as a bridge? Are they the same thing? Are they different? How do they work? Right. So um, I think in addiction management, what we've got to understand is that everything that people do started out with an enormous, powerful, positive purpose in their lives. There's nothing better, and I don't smoke, I never have, but there's nothing better than sucking some nicotine into your lungs and getting that instant tranquility, that instant gratification. And smoking would be one of the the funnest, best things out there. Everybody would be smoking if it didn't kill us. 
But what we learn to do, we learn to, addiction is also in part defined by the distortion of reality that we create in our own minds that validates that I can open this pack of cigarettes where it says, if you puff on this, you're immediately going to die of lung cancer. And I can ignore that message to light up the cigarette. So everything that we do has enormous, powerful, almost obsessive positive value. And if you just take that away, you're leaving a massive void in that person's life. Because by the time you're an addict, by the time you've lost control of the relationship and are tolerating harm and yet ignoring the harm to continue the relationship, in other words, it's beyond abuse. It's addiction and obsessive compulsion. Um, If I look in that person's emotion management toolkit, there's basically carbohydrates and cobwebs. So (laughs) if you remove the carbohydrates with some keto diet, what the devil are they going to do in response to sudden unexpected emotional trauma? Oh my God, keto gods. Back to their muscle memory, okay? And so you may say, okay, we're going to get rid of the carbohydrates. All they have to do is exercise or have a spiritual moment. The problem is they're addicts. They have a vulnerability to addictive behavior because they can't. They cannot use. They don't have the capacity as permissive people to create the structure that is required to do to develop an effort-based system they don't have the capacity as authoritarians to dismantle that so you can tell someone to go out and exercise but it's the very thing they failed at as children to incorporate in their lives now you're asking them to do something they can't do so you first have to help them to identify strategies to make this a daily to and the words i use is you've got to consciously force yourself to check the box, whether it is a two minute walk or a 10 minute walk, I don't care. Create the space in your day. And the only way in which you can create a habit is by practicing it every day. I'm not suddenly gonna walk my dog on a bad day if I don't walk my dog every day. Build up the muscle memory. And the only way you can break a habit is by not doing it. So if I'm allowed to have 20 or 30 grams of carbohydrates and I'm allowed to have a little bit of keto pizza every day, I can't break that habit. I'm still doing it. My muscle memory is still there. And even though I'm losing weight and doing okay, life throws me a COVID curveball and I'm right back pigging out. So the point is that everything that got removed had a positive purpose and we have to replace that positive purpose, preferably with diversity um, so that you don't get nth degree behavior. And they've got to recognize that. And in part, it is a replacement. In part, it's a redirect. So when I was fat, it was Coke and M&Ms. And the human brain can focus for around 20 minutes at any one time, and then it needs a break, and it will take a break. And we are all defined by what that break is. Hmm. So for me, it was a sip of Coke and and a little handful of M&Ms. The redirect was toward my coffee. And is my coffee perfect? No, coffee's not so good, but it is perfect for me. And it's a hell of a lot better than my Coke and M&Ms. So no evangelist on TV or on the internet should ever tell me my coffee's bad for me because the default is Coke and M&Ms. Right. <laughs> so don't you get between me, me and my coffee. So, you know, that's the redirect. And eventually it's, oh God, I need some Coke. Well, let me have some coffee. Oh, the coffee's disgusting. I need some Coke. Let me. And eventually it just becomes, where's my coffee? And the redirect becomes who you are. Exactly the same. When I come home at night, my dog is right there and we go for that walk. It is automatic, but it wasn't automatic to begin with. So that is addiction management. Addiction management is about behavioral change. It isn't about endpoints or goals. You know, one of the things I love to talk about, most of you in Canada know who the Dalai Lama, you know who he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Vera, would you say that he's expert at meditation? Uh, Yes. Absolutely not. Uh, because once you're, and, and I ask you questions, knowing I, w- I want you to get the answer wrong. You would have uh, disappointed me if you got the answer right, okay? Uh-huh. But here's, the, here's what he'll tell you. Is he says, no, I'm not an expert because when I'm an expert, I'm done. That's it. Uh-huh. Over, game over. He is uh-huh. a student of meditation. He uh-huh. may be the best meditator in the world, but uh-huh. as long as he remains a student, there's always more to do tomorrow. Right. And addiction management is a pathway that has no endpoint. It is a continuously evolving dynamic where as long as you've got something new or something more to do tomorrow, the process ends. I love to tell my patients this. The process ends 10 minutes after you die as a very old person. (laughs) And as long as you're moving forward, it's difficult to go sideways. But if, oh, I did keto. I did keto for three months. I lost 20 pounds. I'm great. How are you going to celebrate that? You're going to celebrate with some ice cream. 
Uh-huh. You know, that's like that's like an alcoholic celebrating a year of sobriety with a case of beer. It right. is lunacy, and yet that's what Weight Watchers is. We save up all our points, we lose some weight, so we can have some cheesecake. Yeah. Right. So I get all these questions about, oh, can I have a cheat day? Can I have a little? Oh, right. right. I know. So then, is that how your four pillars kind of play in, where you talk about right. like the creative arts and spirituality, and yeah, does that come into play in that place then when you Absolutely. talk about? bridges and replacements and so what we talk about is you have to consciously force yourself to do something that might be unpleasant right now or not natural for you right now Mm. as long as you can see yourself doing that for a long time so i had to consciously force myself to drink that coffee in the space where i distanced myself from my drug of choice if i open the fridge and i've got a choice between a diet coke and a coke of course i'm going to drink the coke I may be disappointed if the diet coke's there, but I say, ah, you know what, I'll grab that, if that's your choice. So it doesn't have to be perfect. But the key thing there is the redirect has to fall in place in the distance of separation from the carbohydrates. So you have to be able to remove yourself from them. And that distance is so important. You can't stop smoking if you've got cigarettes in your pocket. Uh-huh. And it's the same. You crumple them up, you throw them away, and you create that space, and then you fill that void with a bunch of things. Now, when it comes to carbohydrates, uniquely, they leave two voids. They leave a nutritional void, which most of the keto people are very good at, whether you're carnivore, vegetarian, I don't care, but they're very good at helping you with that. But they don't recognize the emotion management deficit. And so it's equally important to do that because relapse doesn't happen nutritionally. Relapse happens emotionally. Yeah, absolutely. I just want to ask, you have such a uh, formulated therapy plan do you ever actually talk people out of surgery which is fundamentally your job i my job is not to talk people out of surgery my job is to talk them into it when i believe they need it but not to offer it to them when they think they want it in other words um, nobody needs surgery nobody needs surgery as an alternative to doing what we're doing Uh they use surgery as an addition to their toolkit when they're working really hard and struggling. Okay. So you add this to their ability to lose that weight, to deal with that diabetes when they're struggling, but they have to put the effort in up front for the surgery to be successful. The alcoholic will never quit drinking after their liver transplant. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. So what would you tell a family doctor who doesn't have time to do your therapeutic platform and they don't have the money to pay for a counselor? So a client is coming and says, I want the bariatric surgery. Any advice that you would give a family doctor? In terms of the surgery? No, I mean, they're really at this stage in the evolution of this, we're basically a blastocyst in the evolution of this. So there is no advice I can give to a family doctor about not referring a patient for surgery. It is incumbent upon the surgical practice to make that change. And I think while we're talking about surgery, in my opinion, and this is going to be blasphemous, but the single worst thing a family doctor can do with a diabetic is refer them to an endocrinologist. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Because what they're going to get is glycemic index. You have to eat carbohydrates. You have to eat multiple small meals a day. And here's your pill for that or your injection for that. It is a perseveration of the disease process. No endocrinologist cures their patients of diabetes or puts it into remission. So, you know, I know that's difficult to wrap your head around, but it's no different than a family doctor referring or not referring a patient for surgery. What you do want to do is to refer them to a practice that maybe at least considers this. But so when we get referrals, the referral is not for surgery. The referral is for obesity management, and surgery is a part of that in some people. Does that make sense? I've had people that have lost tons of weight and kept it off without surgery. I've got others that had surgery early but have adopted this approach and have done great. It really is about my read and my working with those patients, particularly younger people. Because the other thing about addiction is that, and, and this is an interesting concept that I heard from Zoe Harkham, who's a dietitian in the UK, who's absolutely brilliant. She does a Monday newsletter for anybody that's interested. Uh, Zoe's excellent. She helped him notes with his trial. But it was an interesting comment that she made. She said, the thing that doesn't sustain this weight loss is when people do it for gain. 
Uh-huh. What sustains people more often is when they do it out of fear. In other words, uh, this is a study called the, the, the Diet Fit Study. I think it's the it's where they looked at a group of people on a low carb and a low fat diet, a uh, large group of people. And what they found is that, and this is, this is the data, that men did really, really well in terms of weight loss on a low carb diet. The women did not. Hmm. And what they found is that the majority of women, this is data, so it's not me being sexist or anything like that, because it, it may sound sexist, but the women were primarily motivated by their looks and their dress size. The men were primarily primarily motivated by the fear of a heart attack and their diabetes. And um, yeah. so it wasn't really that men are better than women. It's their motivation was, for the most part, statistically different when they answered the questionnaires. And that's where the, the thought process is, that fear is a better motivator than gain at least in terms of state, this was a year long study. And most people could keep on the diet for eight weeks, which is kind of pathetic when you think about a lifelong disease. Yeah. So Zoe's newsletter is great. It goes into detail, but I think understanding that and motivating people, patients more of fear. That's why I look at their blood work and it's impossible. It is impossible to be heavy and healthy. Hmm. So what we see, the tip of the iceberg is the obesity. What, what happens under the water? is the metabolic disease. And it may not yet be treatable, but an A1C of 5.7 is still every day causing damage to your blood vessels. Or at least the the reason your A1C is heavy, because a normal A1C for me is 5.2. You may not warrant diabetic drugs, but you're still as vulnerable to a heart attack. And I share that message with those people as a motivational thing. Yeah. Do you measure- If you've got Alzheimer's, the time to treat Alzheimer's is not when your brain's not working, yeah. If you've got a family history of Alzheimer's, you're talking about at a minimum of two decades wow. of change before you get to that point. Yeah. So you you know, those, are, those are ways that we motivate people. And that's personal. If you've got a parent. I have a mother with Alzheimer's, mm. horrible Alzheimer's. And it is highly motivational to me to do the right thing, not only for me, but for my son, who's six and a half months old, because I don't want him to be there. And genetically, he's, hi- he's highly likely to have an ApoE4 allele. Hmm. Talk about that some other time. But those are the issues. Those are the motivators for us. Yeah. So in all of that, I'm talking about the surgery, the way that you work with clients, you know, I'm personally invested in this idea of volume addiction, where there are people who will, I mean, believe it or not, I do have clients who will go and binge on the Brussels sprouts. Obviously, after an emotional activating event, they will go to that or it's never enough, right? They'll put their plate on the table. They'll, you know, dish from the protein, they'll dish from the vegetable, the dish from the fat, whatever it might be. And they eat it, but then they continue to go back and back, you know, continue to go back until they just feel like they're going to explode before they'll stop. How do you work with that with these clients that whether they have surgery or not? Right. Yeah, talk well, to us about that. The first thing is this, is that how much you eat is irrelevant to me. And for this reason, I've never met a fat person who was sick because of excess Brussels sprouts. In other words, yes, you can sit down and smack down a massive amount. A lion will eat until it can't move. <laughs> but true. then it won't eat for several days. And I've had plenty, because a statement I make to my patients is this. You can eat a cow a day, you will not get fat. And I believe me, I've had many, many people, especially my, well, a bunch of my patients will go out and test that hypothesis. <laughs> and I've never met that person. Now, there is a caloric reduction associated with weight loss, but weight loss and weight gain are completely different. Oh, that's Any form of caloric reduction results in weight loss, but exclusively chronic, and the words are chronic excessive, carbohydrate consumption causes obesity. Nobody gets fat because they eat too much steak every day. Nobody gets fat because they eat Brussels sprouts. So if you want to go out and pig out on that, that's fine. And there'll be days when you can and days that you can't. The biggest challenge is restoring satiety. And satiety is a biochemical phenomenon. Satiety comes from two different things. It comes from stretch receptors, which are nerves in our stomach. And I can, and this is what I do to people, I can put a balloon in your stomach and make you feel full. Uh So the satiety that comes from eating a tub of ice cream or a bowl of pasta or whatever it may be, comes from those stretch receptors 
because there is, those are neuronal feedback going to the brain and you're full for a little bit, but right after that, you can eat some more. Um, the other form of satiety, and this is why biologically saturated fat has been demonized and is another reason why saturated fat's okay, because the human body has a multitude of receptors that are feedback receptors based on saturated fat, four in the intestine, one in the fat cells. And remember, fat goes, bypasses the liver, goes straight to the fat cells. I call it the, I've named it the leptinoid pathway. You won't read that in a textbook anywhere because it's not just leptin, leptin's one of them. So the philosophy for us is to add whatever you're eating, use fat as a condiment. If you're going to eat those Brussels sprouts, throw some bacon in there, throw some olive oil on there. If you're going to eat a chicken breast, chop it up, throw some mayo in there, throw a piece of bacon in, throw some cheese on your, not a huge amount. Don't fat load it. Don't eat a ton of fat. Stupidity is eating fat and you're drinking fat in your coffee, unless you look like an Olsen twin. Then you need to get every source of fat you can in. But the point is for people that are trying to lose weight, leverage a little bit of saturated fat in your food as that early satiety signal. Mm. And Early on, you can still eat like a Rottweiler having breakfast because you can override that signal. Then you feel disgusted and stuck afterwards. But it takes time for that satiety signal to happen. Yeah. Over time, and this is where, I, Molly, with respect, I disagree with you. Over time, I'm talking about three, four months, as you start excuse me, to fat adapt, the thing that I get most upset with is I eat once a day, not because I choose to, but because I'm not full, I'm full. I don't need to eat. I'm not hungry. As long as I got my coffee, I'm not hungry because I'm in fat adapted ketosis, which takes three to six months to begin to happen. However, I'll sit down tonight and we're having ribeye steak tonight. And I'm going to make, I'm still a fat guy up here. I'm going to make a massive ribeye steak, but I'm going to cut it into three pieces and I'm going to take a small piece to the table with me. And I'll eat that piece because most human beings predetermine in the low fat era, they right. predetermine how much they think they need. And because there's no satiety signaling, they finish what they chose to eat and they override any signaling. When I take that little piece of, of ribeye steak to the table and I finish that, then I can sit there, my plate's empty. I can say, okay, how do you feel? And my belly now tells my brain, you know what, dude, you're feeling okay. You're done. And particularly if there's a bit of laziness involved that I have to go back to the kitchen to get more. If I want it, if I'm hungry, there's no crime to having more. But I know tonight I'll want to have it all. And by the time I've had that little piece, boom, I'm done. And thank God that there's, I do it well with leftovers and what, what's left over the, with the steak my dog will eat. But the point is, that is satiety signaling. So at one stage, I can eat a massive amount. I can overeat, but it is not going to make me obese. And that's the disconnect. Does it make sense? Yeah. So yeah, that's binging on carbohydrates will eventually result in harm. Binging on broccoli or steak will never do that unless there's okay. an allergy or something, but it won't do it by a, from a caloric consumption perspective. And that's important to understand. So I understand. I hear completely where you're coming from, Molly, mm -hmm. but that is still for me in the diet perspective where people are looking at the first few weeks of this. Mm -hmm. That's the infancy. Where are you at three months, at six months, at a year? Yeah. And, and you'll hear people that are on a carnivore diet a year out or even on a omnicarnivore diet, their frustration is or the pleasure, the pride is that they can't eat often and they can't eat much. Mm -hmm. But that is a conditioning because fat people are conditioned to overeat. Right. Okay. Well, and what you're saying is so accurate too. We did just interview Nicola Vina a few weeks ago and she talked about, you know, for example, if you eat the same thing over and over again, you eat ground beef with butter over and over again, whatever, right? You just start to limit. It starts to restrict on its own. You you become that satiety sure. thing kicks in just a lot sooner. So I'm with you. And so that's where I, I can get behind you. And I agree with that volume piece because so many folks don't necessarily have that, right? They want it. They want to have the variety. They always want to have different textures and different, right? pops of fruit or whatever it might be. And so then we really suggest weighing and measuring food and we, you know, try to find whatever those amounts are for them so that they are feeling the full and not hungry. After. hungry. Yes, exactly. Satiety, yeah. this, the principle of addiction management as opposed to diet. Diet's about caloric restriction to lose weight, whether it's elimination or global caloric reduction, which is to leave somebody hungry is unsustainable. 
You want to fill them up. And I don't care if they overeat to begin with, because I don't care what they weigh next week. You see, diets fail so quickly that what people focus on is I've got to lose 28 pounds in 38 seconds because all diets pitch instant weight loss. And if tomorrow I get on the scale and my weight hasn't gone down, this diet doesn't work and I move to something else. This, what we, a large part of the upfront messaging is that this is a restoration of biologic normality and it doesn't happen in an instant. And the other reason, the biologic, physiologic reason why what you say doesn't happen instantly is this. Every obese person by definition has insulin resistance, whether they are hyperglycemic, whether they are hyperinsulinemic, and that does not go away quickly. When you are heavy, your cells no longer trust you. Yeah. They're getting damaged by what you're throwing at them and they've shut the front door and changed the lock. You have to re-earn the trust of your cells and they're not going to give you trust in a day or a week or a month. And what we're talking about is insulin resistance. So when you're insulin resistant, it blocks high insulin, perpetual flat lining of insulin at a high level blocks fat fat mobilization. So when you're eating a high carbohydrate diet, you get a sugar high And then rapidly that sugar disappears and you get a sugar low, which triggers hunger, physiologic hunger. And throughout the day, there's the seesaw of hunger, hunger, hunger. That's why a lot of practices and people tell, oh, snack often. The whole thing of you must, that's to accommodate multiple snacks a day is to accommodate that high low. As you go ketogenic, that doesn't change. So now I've eaten my steak, but because of my insulin resistance, when I've used up the fat and the protein for my steak, maybe two or three hours later, now I can't access my fat. Even though I weigh 300 pounds, I yeah. can't access that fat because of insulin. So I'm hungry. And, and of course, then eat some steak, eat that. Because the way you eat an elephant is in at one bite at a time. And all too often, <laughs> keto diet people try to eat the elephant in one bite. And both physiologically and psychologically, they choke on the elephant. This is a long process. The objective here is not to lose. This is a critical statement. In addiction management, as opposed to diet, the objective is not to lose weight. The objective is to change why you became fat in the first place. Mm, yes, right. absolutely. And that yeah. is Love a it. behavioral change. You know, I'm 22 years in myself. I lost 98 pounds or 90 pounds 22 years ago. I'm still working on it. Yeah. I'm still on that journey. I still screw up. I still make mistakes. Yeah. And it's so good to hear. People need to hear this more. Of course. Yes. You know, it doesn't mean I'm not struggling and working really hard at this, but it is a lifelong personal battle when you've been in it as deep as I have. You know, if you're some person who's gained 20 pounds after whatever, after vacation or a baby, that's weight loss. Go to Weight Watchers, do Jenny Craig, do anything for weight loss. That's just a little bit of abuse. Where I am, it's an entire psychologic disruption that defines who I am, and so does the change. And that is true for most of my patients. Now, there is, interestingly enough, in the diabetes world, I had one somebody today who's been a type 1 diabetic since he was 11 years old. He's 40 years old now, okay? And he is completely authoritative. So he has no addiction vulnerability at all. But the reason why he came to see me was because of the way the endocrinologist treated him by forcing him to consume carbohydrates and then use insulin to get rid of what he just ate. So he was following their guidelines absolutely, but they gave him the wrong guidelines. And he heard some of my stuff and actually adopted some of my stuff and brought his A1C down from 12.1 to 5.5 just by himself. So I don't have to talk addiction at all. I just have to help him to undo what his endocrinologist did. Same thing with with athletes who may be carb loading because somebody told them that was good for athletic performance. Not everybody's an addict. Sometimes therapists see everybody as an addict and there are a group of people out there that are not. Unfortunately, it's not very big. Okay. But we've got to be able to recognize that up front as well. And for them, it's a biologic treatment. And it's a, it's a rational treatment. There's not a lot of addiction involved. 
So I just well, want to ask one more question yeah. before we close up. And that is just in your unique approach, has there been any pushback from your either the medical community at large or the sur- bariatric surgery community? Like where do you... Um, Flip yeah, that question upside down. There is nowhere where there has not been pushback. Okay. So, uh, you know, when a patient goes in, I had one today. Patient called me up and was very upset. They had a visit with their family doctor. They'd lost, not without surgery, they'd lost about 70 or 80 pounds. Their diabetes is gone. Their hypertension is gone. They're off medications. Their Hashimoto's is in remission. And their, their family doctor was ecstatic about it. But when, right. they, when he said, well, how did you do that? He said keto. And he showed him his blood work. He said, oh, my God, you're killing yourself. And you have to take a statin because your LDL is high. Oh, yeah. So I get that all the time. And I have to look to my patient's successes Uh every day to prove me right. I am the greatest challenger of myself. Because how can it be possible that I'm the only person, and this is from way back, the only person in my circle of expert colleagues that can possibly see this? I must be mistaken. And I've challenged myself all the time, and yet every day, multiple times a day, my patients prove me right. And it's not about me being right or wrong. They prove that this is the right pathway. So I've had to navigate, being called unethical, being told it's malpractice, being told all this stuff from up on high, and yet the proof is there every single day. And it's challenging. It's very, very difficult. And there are places where I'm very comfortable saying, I don't care if you're vegan. I don't care if you're carnivore. I care about you not eating sugar and starch. Uh, that's great. Thank you, Dr. Simons. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. Molly, you want to? Absolutely. Yeah. This has been, this has been great. And we say the same things. Clarissa Kennedy, who's another co-host and I see clients one-on-one daily and that's, you know, people are like, I'm a vegan. Will you work with me? Sure. Why not? Yeah, absolutely. So thank you so much. Okay. A couple questions. Where can our listeners find you? Okay. So there are a couple of things. First of all, I post on Instagram every day and it's a little thought from my head while I'm walking my dog. I'm Carb Addiction Doc on Instagram. My wife is Carb Addiction Mom on Instagram. And if you want to know how we're raising our baby, one in 49 kids in the US and I think in Canada as well has autism. It is not a genetic defect. It is a substrate problem. I was going to ask you about that. We discuss. So it is a, a saturated fat problem and a polyunsaturated fat and insulin resistance. Wow. Uh, and they looked at the genetics of fat metabolism instead of looking at the availability of fat substrate. Whole different topic. I'd be happy to talk about that. So they can follow my wife, Carb Addiction Mom, mm-hmm. who talks about what we eat in the house. She also had a horrible time with postpartum depression and has been very public about that. So follow those two on Instagram. But the other place they can find me is I am Carb Addiction Doc on YouTube. And if they subscribe, hit the little bell. It helps me. It's all free. I've got a charitable organization that puts that stuff out. We like contributions to that, financial contributions, to pay the people that do the videos. I get no money from it. And if people, even in Canada, I've got a lot of patients from all over the world that consult with us. If they text 561-517-0642, or you can WhatsApp that if you're outside of the country, we can set up a consultation by phone or by Zoom, WhatsApp outside of the country with anybody anywhere in the world. And we do that. I mean, I start my day early in the morning in Australia and Europe, and then I end my evenings kind of in the Far East. So it goes all the way across the time zones. But whether you just want corroboration of what you're doing, whether you're having a battle with your own doctor, whether you want to know a little bit more, whether you've had surgery and are struggling, that's the kind of work we do. About 60% of my practice right now is diabetes management using the same approach. About 40% is obesity and everything in between. So it's not about me. I think the educational component for a variety of different issues is at Carb Addiction Doc on YouTube. And it's purely educational. Yeah, you've got wonderful uh, YouTube videos on there, a lot of them. So uh, listeners, check it out. Absolutely. So our final question, our signature question is, if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about carb addiction, carb addiction recovery, what would it be? Change your parents because they <laughs> created you. No, it is out to our parents, but 
we get raised a certain way, we become that person, and then it crosses generations. We raise our own kids the same way. At some stage, break that. I think if there's any advice I can give to myself, it has nothing to do with carbohydrates. It has to do with introspection about how I handle emotional tension. And if you can understand when you are having a particular emotion, in other words, take your emotional pulse regularly throughout the day. See, if all you've got is ice cream, it doesn't matter how you feel. But if you know that if you feel a little down and depressed, you're going to listen to some music. If you're feeling angry or aggressive, you're going to go for a walk. If you're feeling great, you're going to play a game of cards and chat with somebody. And if you're feeling a little insecure, you're going to have a little spiritual moment. You can assign a diversity of emotion management strategies to particular emotions. So if I could have a conversation with my younger self is put a pulse, put, put your fingers on your emotional pulse. No, name the tune, name how you feel throughout the day, and then practice every day a specific strategy that you do, not consume, that you do to dissipate that particular emotional tension. Because it's not about treating carbohydrate addiction or any addiction, it's about prevention. And if I can tell any parents, if I can have a message to my own parents, is don't create expectations. Have structure, but praise my effort. It's not about how pretty my painting is. It's about how much fun I had painting it. Mm-hmm. You can still put it on the fridge if you want to, but don't praise the result, praise the effort. Okay, well, thank you so much for uh, spending the hour with us talking about your treatment style and your thoughts about addiction, food yes, addiction, thank you so much. carbohydrate addiction specifically. I really appreciate it, and I really appreciate what you guys are doing. It, the more the voices are out there, that are friendly in this territory, the more people will feel comfortable doing what they kind of know they need to do, but are often afraid to do. Right on. Yeah. yeah. Especially the doc- the doctors. Yeah. Yes, um, absolutely. Thank you again so much, Dr. Saivez. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.